What's going on, everybody? Welcome to part four of this series on family, Anchored in Hope. Now, I've been saying this the whole time, and it's especially true today. This is a series about family, but it's also a series about Jesus and about relationships. What we're saying today, what we're going into works in all of your relationships. So I'm telling you, there's something for everyone. To catch you up, this series comes from a verse in Hebrews chapter 6. It says this, We have this hope in Jesus, that's our hope in Jesus, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And and what he's saying there is our hope in Jesus can be a real anchor for ourselves, for our souls, for our families, and for those around us. And that's our hope in a world where it's harder and harder to do family well, in a world where things are chaotic and confusing and ever-changing. Our hope in Jesus can be an anchor for our souls, for our hearts, for our lives, and for our families. And that is what we are running after today. Now, we don't have a lot of time and a lot to go through, so I'm going to get right after it. We're going to look at some words in family, about family, in the book of Ephesians. Now, i got to give you a rundown on Ephesians really quick. Here's what the writer, Paul, essentially does as he follows through the book. In the first four chapters, you get nothing but gospel. He says, I'm praying that you would dive into how deep God's love is for you. He says that Jesus is supreme and he's above all things and our entire faith is resting on him. He says, it's by grace you're saved through faith. This is not by works. No one can boast. It is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you can go and do for him. And you have been freed. And in Jesus, you are made into a masterpiece, equipped to go into the world and do good works that God has prepared you for. So he just lays out gospel for four chapters. But then the book shifts. And he begins to look at how this gospel should affect family life and the way you do business and different things. And in chapter 6, he looks through the cross and through the gospel into people's homes, into the homes of Jesus' followers. And he goes, let me show you what this means for family. So in Ephesians 6, verse 1, we get these words, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Time out. All jokes aside, young people, if you are a Jesus follower, you have been called to a higher standard within your household. You are called to see your parents not flippantly, not not as these antiquated figures who want to just ruin your fun. You are called to look at them differently, realizing that God has handpicked them to be a part of your life and that they've been through some things and they've got some stories and they've made some mistakes. And God has placed them in your life to teach you and train you based on their experience to keep you from falling into some of the same habits and pitfalls and mistakes that they did at one point in your life. And then Paul moves from the responsibility of children to the responsibility of fathers. And guys, he says fathers, but I believe wholeheartedly there's a word for every parent in these words. He says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, time out. Hold on to all that really quick. Because I need to go back 
and in light of this passage, redact something that I began with in this series. Now, if you were here at week one, you saw us look at Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and we said, what's our goal for parenting? It's going to be what Jesus said in Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We looked at this verse, and then we said, my goal is to raise children, duh, that'll love God with the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I've come to believe after studying this passage, this is a good goal, but it's not complete. And it's missing something. I'll explain it like this. If I instill faith values in my child without a relationship to match, I'll have a compliant kid, but I won't have a complete kid. I can raise a kid who believes the right things, says the right things, goes the right places, heck, who even does the right things. But if that that training, if my relationship there, if, if what I'm doing with my children in my home is not saturated in a rich, loving relationship that mirrors the relationship that God desires for us, then I'm missing it. You could get this if I talked about marriage. In my marriage, if I had a wife that just did everything I wanted to do, you know, when TV was on, it's what I want to watch. When we go out to eat, it's where I want to go. When we do something, it's what I want to do. I could have a wife who does all of those things, but if she doesn't look forward to having me come home at the end of the day, something's missing. I have a compliant wife, but my marriage is a complete failure. Now walk that back into our conversation about parenting. Yeah, you could get a kid to obey God, maybe even to love him, but if that is not accompanied by a rich, loving relationship between you and them, we have missed something important. On the back end of the gospel, relationship matters. It's not just statutes anymore. It's not just commandments to a God in the sky. It is about a God who came down to have relationship with us and wants to infuse our homes with rich relationship. So we're going to get back to our passage in a minute. But first, I want to update our parenting goal. here's, Here's our new and improved version. My goal is to raise children that will love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a child that wants to be around me when they don't have to be. We want to we do relationships so well in our homes that one day when the kids don't have to be and they have resources and a car and a home and a family and their own thing going on, they still desire to be around us even when they don't have. We want to parent with relationship in mind so deeply. Our end game is kids who want to be around. So that's our new goal. We want kids who love the Lord God with all they've got, but they also look forward to family vacation. We want kids who love the Lord with all they got, but when they leave off to college and everybody's going, hey, where do you want to go? They want to bring all their friends back home with them. We want to raise kids who go and raise kids that love the Lord, but want to bring those kids back home for Thanksgiving because relationship matters. Now, I believe Paul knew this. 
I believe as he looked through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel and what it means for homes, he knew relationship matters. And that's why he brings in these words. Yeah, he says, children, obey your parents. I mean, that was common practice in that day. But then he brings in these revolutionary words where he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up to actually nourish them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, you may not realize this, but these words were chaotic and controversial to the original listeners. They upset two big things about the spirituality and mental frameworks of Christians in this day. Number one, this commandment. Okay, everybody was expecting the kids obey your parents part, but nobody would have heard, and dad, you have something to do with this too. There was something in this culture called pater familius. It was a Roman house code. It was the law that stated the oldest male in every home has complete legal authority over everybody else in the household. Essentially, the oldest male was the boss and everybody else worked for him. They were a little bit better than property, but not much more than employees. And these words flipped pater familius on its head. Paul comes along and goes, hey, we don't get to look at the gospel and then run through our family anymore like they work for us, guys. We don't get to look at the life of Jesus Christ and then go back into our homes, say whatever we want, do whatever we want, expect everybody to bend around us. Oh, no, no, not anymore. Do not exasperate your children. To exasperate means to put a weight on, to, to embitter, to crush, to pressure children by force of will. Paul says, not so with you. These words are Paul saying, you don't get to look at Jesus Christ coming down from heaven, dying a death on a cross so you could live and be welcomed into his family. And then you go, and when it's time to love your family, you just lead them through force of will, not anymore. He says, you don't get to look at Jesus who came down from heaven, made himself nothing, take on the very nature of a servant, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but instead becoming a slave to humanity. Oh, you don't get to look at that anymore and boss your family around. You look at Jesus and you do the same thing underneath your roof, fathers. And he also does this. Here's the other great reversal. If you looked through the pages of Scripture, parents, all the commandments in Scripture about family and parenting, you get a lot of do this commandments. These are positive commandments. Make God known. Teach the commandments. Commend God. Train a child. Discipline them. There are all of these things that I'm supposed to do. But by the time Jesus comes and the cross happens, the gospel happens, resurrection happens, Paul looks back through those events into households and he introduces a don't do it commandment. And what he's saying here is, and this is important, with all your desire to raise a kid and you want them to grow up and be a certain kind of young lady and have a certain kind of job and have a certain thing and they need to get certain grades and there's a way you want them to talk and there's a way you want them to treat people. Your desire for that, if it goes unchecked by the grace of God, can become a weight that sits on top of your children, crushing them and the relationship that you have with them. And if that happens, you've missed it. Oh, you may get a compliant child, but you're not going to raise a complete child. 
So this commandment causes us to check all of our desires for our kids, all the things we want for them, all the plans and dreams that God's given us against his love for us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you from the jump, it might get a little painful from this point forward. I'm going to ask four big questions. Four big questions that are designed to help you identify things in your life that may be causing you, driving you to wear out your children. Now, these are painful questions. These are introspective questions, but I want to challenge you from the very beginning. Be the Jesus follower who's willing to lean in. Be the Jesus follower who goes, if God's in this, this may hurt a little bit, but I want it. Resist the urge to apply this to somebody else or to think about somebody else's house and think about your own life, your own faith, and your own family. Here we go. Four big questions. Number one is simply this. Am I driving my kids through my unresolved issues and unrealized dreams? Am I driving my kids in light of my unresolved issues and unre- or unrealized dreams? Uh, I love jujitsu and the sport that it is. The mixed martial arts thing is just incredible. And a legend in the sport is a guy named Hickson Gracie. Recently just released a book on Breathe. He's literally trained hundreds of thousands of people in martial arts and jujitsu and observed the way parents lead their kids and what he's seen in classes. And he says some powerful words about training kids in this sport. And, he, and I think there's something in them for us today. He goes, if you push two kids too hard, too young, they'll quit forever. Parents should never burden their kids with their unfulfilled frustrations, anxiety, or any other form of emotional baggage. The parent support must be consistent. The most important thing is that the child gets the experience, win, lose, or draw, without judgment. Here's what I'm talking about, you guys. Maturity is realizing the time you weren't picked, the time you didn't measure up, and the things that you didn't have when you, that you really, really wanted growing up can become a driver or a motivation in your parenting. And when they do, the outcome is always increased pressure on your children. Because now all of a sudden he's up to bat in Little League and he is up to bat with all of the times in mind that you struck out. She's doing the assignment in high school and she's carrying the weight of the assignment and the pressure you've put on her because of the admittance letter you never got is now riding on her as well. Parents, do not let your baggage pour into the lives of your kids. We talked about this. Everyone leaves their house with two bags in hand and you have two options as to what to do with those. You can either bring them to Jesus for redemption and healing, or you can pass them on to your children. It is as simple as that. Are you parenting through your unresolved issues and unrealized dreams? Here's an easy way to tell this. When your kid makes you look bad, how do you react? 
When they say something a little embarrassing, when their inadequacy or imperfection puts your family on display in front of a group of people, what happens in between your ears? What song plays? What script gets written? I'll tell you, you pay attention to that reaction and you can see if you're parenting the kid through the lens of something you always wanted or that never happened to you. I remember I made this mistake, not in parenting, but in marriage. And I hate to say this, but, you know, there was the longest time I exasperated Brit because of my unresolved issues. I'm a recovering people pleaser, which means for me, the pressure to impress is like, always looking around, lurking around the corner. And I remember times early in our marriage where we'd be in front of a group of people and she'd say something about us that was actually true, it was real, it was authentic, but it made me look less than perfect. And all of a sudden there would be a three alarm fire going off in my head and anger and fear and emotion would rise up and then I'd smile and try and play it off and cover it off and then we'd go home and then I'd lecture her about what she should have said and what she should have done and how she could have said it better. And I was crushing her, not because of her, but because of me, because here's what happened. The craziest thing happened. When I decided to bring that issue to Jesus, I got help, I got counseling, I got Jesus in the mix. The craziest thing happened. When I got spiritually and emotionally healthy, all of the sudden, at the same exact time, Britt quit, quit saying things that were so embarrassing. It was nuts. And obviously, I'm kidding. What really happened? Well, as I resolved my issues, they put less and less pressure on her. And that matters. Parents, is there something you always wanted that you never got? Now you're trying to parent your kid in light of that. Was there something that happened to you and now you're desperately trying to make sure it doesn't happen to them and in the process you're crushing them? Are you parenting your kid out of the love and grace of God or being driven by something in your past? Here's question number two. Am I trying to accomplish something today that God wants to accomplish over generations? What I mean is this. God is a God of generations. God is a God who thinks bloodline. See, often we think about where lunch is coming from, what we're going to do next, what we have to do this week, and maybe a couple goals for the year if we're really being long-sighted in our approach. God doesn't think about tomorrow. God doesn't think about what your goals are this year. He thinks bloodline. He thinks generations. He thinks family tree. Go to Proverbs for me. In 13.22, he says these words, A good person or a righteous man leaves an inheritance for who? His children's children. God doesn't just think about your world and what you want to be up to. He's thinking about those who are coming after you. There's this powerful moment when a covenant is established with Abraham in Genesis 17. And God says these words. He says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants. Where? after you. God makes this huge promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but you need to know this. There are parts of my blessings to you that are not for you. As a matter of fact, there are for your children and for their children. There are dreams I have for you and vision that I've given you that is not simply for you. It is for those who are coming after you. This matters. 
Jesus followers, some of the dreams God has given you and things God has called you to may not be for your lifetime. You may, your role may to be to get the story from A to B so your children get to live C and D and their grandchildren get to live E, F, and G. Now, God, maybe he gave you E, F, and G, but here's a problem, time out. If you go trying to run 30 miles when God has only called you to run 10 miles, you're going to wear yourself out and everybody else around you in the process. Because when I'm trying to do three generations of work in my day, That is a recipe for slavish labor. That's a recipe for striving and never being satisfied. That's a recipe for workaholism. And then here's what happens. When those family members of yours stand in between you and those goals, what happens? You make sure they pay for it. You make sure they know that they're not living up to your standards. Guys, we need to tighten things up. We need to work a little harder because we have some achievements to fulfill. But Jesus follower, what would happen if God showed up to you tonight and said the words, my son, you can relax. Oh, you're going to see some good things in your day. But these dreams, oh, they're for your grandchildren. Some of these dreams, they're for your children's children. And today, here's all I want you to do. I want you to play your faithful part in my story. You know what you'd do? you would probably take a big breath out and you would relax, you would play your part faithfully and you would probably enjoy it so much more in the process. For some of you, applying this message is taking that breath today right here online as I'm speaking and deciding you're going to give God's plan more time to unfold. Question number three is comparison, my primary parenting metric. Is comparison with other children my primary parenting method? I, I get this. I want to be sensitive here because, come on, we, our culture, you, you have the baby and you take them in for the appointment. They tell you which percentile your kid is in according to all the other kids in America right now. That's helpful. I'm not against that. You get a standardized test to help you get into school. I'm not against that. That's help. You, you get a class rank. It's helpful. But, but here, here's the danger. When I move from these general comparisons that are simply data points to comparing my kid personally to another person, I've crossed the line. Comparison destroys families. As a matter of fact, if, if I was trying to give you, if I was doing a sermon on how to destroy your family, your marriage, your kids, uh, all the relationships around you, one of the first things I would tell you to do if you wanted to totally wreck your home would be to compare your kids to other kids. Name them. And, and look your kids in the eye and say, hey, I wish you did this more like her and that more like him. And then go to your wife and say, how come you don't do what she does? And how, go to your husband and say, how come you don't look like he does? And I would have you compare your family to other people because comparison is a deadly trap and there are no winners when you compare. Uh, that's why in the gospel... Paul would continue to write after his relationship with God and say, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they 
are not wise. Now, that was a mouthful. Let, let me explain what I'm saying here. Paul says it's not wise. It's not wise to compare. Here's why. When you're busy comparing your family to other families or your children to other children, uh, your kid to other metrics or things that you wish they were doing, you can overlook the unique contribution your child was crafted to make. Proverbs said that child of yours was fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians says that they are a work of art, that God hand-brushed them stroke by stroke for a unique life and a unique purpose here on earth. And when I get busy comparing them to them, I miss who they were made to be. It's like that Einstein quote. Do you guys remember that? He says, everyone's a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it's stupid. That's such a good metaphor for comparison. Because when we take a kid that was made for one thing and compare them to a kid that was made for another, we're setting that kid up for a lifetime of feeling like they're not enough. Is comparison your main metric? Last question. Here we go. Stick with me. Number four. Am I being wise with my words? James 3, 3 through 5. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they're large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue, the words you say, your tongue, the words you say, is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider when a great forest can be set on fire by a spark. What is he saying here? Small words make a big difference. Small words can make a big difference. You are coding and coloring and shading the life of your children with the words you speak to them repeatedly, and they matter. I grew up dying Easter eggs the, the old-fashioned way. You would get a cup of vinegar and heat it up really, really hot, and then you would drop this little chemical pellet into the vinegar, and I'm sure there's no way those fumes and vapors were good for us, but then you would take this little metal scoop and you would dunk it inside the coffee cup over and over again. You would turn it and dunk it and turn it and dunk it, and the egg would slowly take on the color of the dye. That's how your words work. You are submerging your kids in reality with your words. And your, word, your kids will take on the shade of your words. And they matter. I'll give you an example in our home. Uh, we had to ban a certain word from our home because it was being used too, too often. Uh, without realizing it, we started raising careful kids. We, we had to ban the word careful for our home. It slid in. Bear would take his Nintendo Switch and be standing on top of a chair to plug it into the little console holder. And we'd say, careful. Somebody would be baking and they'd have the thing of flour and they'd be putting it up on a shelf. And we'd say, careful. And they're outside on the, and in the driveway on the skateboard. And we'd say, careful and careful. Make sure you're being careful, careful. Hey, be careful. And then I stop for a second and realize without thinking about it, we're raising careful children. And careful is not a gospel value. Careful is actually antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is spread by people who are willing to take faith-driven risk, not be careful. On top of that, I've never seen somebody get a job and they go, oh yeah, they really like me because I'm careful. 
I'm not a lady and I don't pretend to know your sensibilities, but come on, that guy you had a crush on and you couldn't wait to go on that date on and then he put a ring on your finger and you got so excited and after that night you had met him and you went and told the other girls what he was like, you weren't like, oh, he's just so careful. I don't want to raise careful kids. I want to raise confident kids. I want to shoot my kids into this air, in this world like an arrow loaded with purpose and vision. I don't, you can't be careful and have that happen. So we subbed it out. And we changed the word to focus on what you're doing. You're putting the flower away? Hey, focus on what you're doing. You want to walk across the, the top of the playground on the outside of it and not on the inside? That's fine. Just focus on what you're doing. And it's a small change. But it is shaping reality for our children. My question for you is, are there any phrases you say on a regular basis that aren't leading your kids to Christ? They matter. Are you being wise with your words? Now, here's what we just did. I just emptied out a truckload of convicting questions, content, verses, and all of it. And I get that. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Let's take all this and make it manageable. I want to just ask you, what's your biggest yes? As we walk through the questions, the comparison, the wise with words, as we talked about generations and taking time and being patient, as we talked about unresolved issues and unrealized dreams, which one, when I asked you those questions, which one was your biggest yes? Which one was the like, ah, dang it, that's me. Here's the deal. Let's focus there. And here's where I want you to finish. Here's why why you put the pressure on them. Here's why you say the thing over and over even though you don't want to say it. here's Here's why you wish that everybody... Here's the deal. You want your kids to be okay. And I honor that. And I think that matters. But here's the thing. Do not forget that it is the love of God that will transform them into everything they were made to be, not our parental pressure. It is the love of God that will lead them through their lives and never let them go. It is the love of God that will shape them and conform them into everything that they were made to be, and that love is enough today. I love you guys. Have a good one. Peace.